Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Pain Talk podcast. I'm really excited today about our new guest. Her name is Natasha Rodney-Kale. She works with the Drug Evaluation Unit uh, at Nova Scotia Health. You might remember her colleague, Pam McLean-Vesey, who we interviewed last week. What we're trying to do is to dig into some case studies that we discussed at the Choosing Wisey conference that we had in October and uh, just exploring the evidence uh, for some of the pharmacotherapy that we use regularly in healthcare. So it's kind of interesting to look at some of the, you know, some of the challenges that we have. And uh, in some ways, it reinforces the fact that maybe medication has a role to play, but uh, it isn't the only role. And I think that's the important thing that we need to consider is that we need to be open to other strategies. Now, whether our patient sometimes is open to those strategies, that's where the challenge is. So without further ado, Natasha, thank you so much for for coming today. And uh, why don't you just start by telling us a bit about your background? I graduated at Dow in 1998, and I actually originally started in community practice. I practiced for about five years in community, and then kind of accidentally stumbled into long-term care um, and mm-hmm. really enjoyed it and, and sort of um, had a focus there for quite a number of years. Um, and then through that, that actually led me to the Drug Evaluation Unit, um, which we are the group that does uh, does work on behalf of, or in, in, in conjunction with academic detailing as one of our many hats. And so through there, it was actually just at the time, just, just a very brief uh, taste of the Drug Evaluation Unit. And I went on to hospital practice for, gosh, a good number, eight, eight or nine years. Um, working as a drug information pharmacist and then as well as a a clinical pharmacist for a period of time as well. And then when a position came up again at the drug evaluation unit, I I kind of jumped at it. I had been there in a term position previously and so uh, I've been with them for for eight years now. So it's obvious, uh, I'm I'm sure you know our background and so it's really just um, obviously we have the luxury as pharmacists in this unit to be able to delve into um, evidence and uh, be able to do critical appraisal on the evidence. Um, and, you know, our role with academic detailing, we can pull that together and, and hopefully p- put it in a way that's able to be communicated uh, yeah. to actually have, you know, for actual clinical practice. So yeah, yeah, and I think where it beautifully pairs is with the Choosing Wisely mandate and uh, where we're trying to help healthcare practitioners um, when they're using pharmacotherapy or even non-pharmacotherapy, that they're using it based on evidence. And I know the evidence can be challenging, but still we can have those conversations with patients. But yeah, so I love the pairing of clinical practice uh, with the uh, with you guys because you um, really, it kind of brings it all together. And I think the beauty too, I know myself, when we, when we, you know, in, in, in real life practice, uh, when you're, you're kind of seeing how things gel out or don't gel out clinically, and when you see the evidence that kind of reaffirms what you're experiencing, it's, it's, it's actually very empowering. And um, so I, I, I think that's the other beauty of this is that the evidence often speaks to what we experience clinically as well. Um, so in some of the challenges, and I know that especially around opioid analgesics, I can remember oh my gosh, uh, you know, probably about five, 10 years 
before we started seeing all of the, like around, uh, you know, when, when we started seeing uh, the opioid, I guess they refer to it as the crisis, we saw that so much sooner uh, on the ground. And I remember going into, say, the emergency department and saying, God, this is, doesn't feel right at all. I really felt we were doing more harm than benefit, but there was so much pressure for us to prescribe that there was, there was uh, and when I say prescribe, I mean opiate analgesics, mm-hmm. uh, but even aggressively managing patients in the emergency room with chronic pain flare-ups, you know, with, with parental opiates. And I, I kept thinking, we're not helping patients manage their complex disease this way, and took a while, I think, but once, because I think most of, especially emergency, I can only speak from my experiences that it was really based on moral or ethical reasoning, you know, how, how dare us let people suffer. Yeah. And then somehow we, we reflected to the opiate analgesic as being the only therapy, when in fact, we, what we were really doing is contributing to suffering in the majority of patients. Yeah. Um, so I think I, that's what I love about the pairing of, of what you guys do and what we see in clinical practice. And sometimes you teach me a ton and I think, wow, I would <laughs> never have thought that. <laughs> so it's all good. All right. So let's come to this case that uh, you were presenting at the Choosing Wisely uh, conference. And I'm just going to say, just describe the case and then I'm going to sure. hand it over to you. So this is a 40-year-old female who has a large uh, fatty tumor uh, removed uh, from her hip area, uh, in the in the upper hip area. Uh, so she basically tells you that she's got so much more pain than she could have ever imagined. And she's absolutely terrified what the pathology is going to show. And she's coming to your department, coming to your office, sorry, for a request of, for a refill of an opiate analgesic. So I'll just leave it to you. I actually had a number of questions that come to mind. And first and foremost is actually, is she taking any other analgesics, non-opioid analgesics for her pain after her surgery. That's become a cornerstone. The concept of multimodal analgesia has become a cornerstone for many types of acute pain, but specifically for post-surgical pain. And the thought is, is if we can use non-opioid pain relievers in addition to opioids, if they're necessary, that it actually has an additive effect. They add up together and reduces the reliance on opioids. And a lot of guidelines have certainly adopted um, that philosophy. And so we did actually look into, well, what, what speaks to this? Is this? Does this really bear out in, in the evidence? So we actually approached, um, when we looked at the evidence from a, you know, is there, is there anything to guide post-surgical, post-discharge prescribing um, to help treat, treat pain? And surprisingly, there's very there's nothing on an outpatient basis. Crazy, um, crazy. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Something and we do so often. <laughs> so we we've had to sort of, you know, take what we have from an evidence perspective and, and piece it together. And it is a bit of an extrapolation to the outpatient um, outpatient uh uh, individual, but what we've kind of found is sort of generally pain and post-surgical pain's kind of been studied generally one of two ways. So either they take a single drug, they evaluate a single dose and see if it reduces pain in people. And so the reduction in pain that they evaluate is on what we call pain, on pain scores and a 50% reduction in pain scores is felt to be what we call clinically significant. And that's because Anybody, even if they have severe pain on a pain scores, if you reduce their pain score by 50%, you're putting them in a mild pain category. But these are single dose 
studies, the value of them is you can look at one medication in isolation, you, you assess it for a very short period of time, if the patient doesn't give adequate relief, then you can give them another medication to, to assist with the relief. So you kind of can get a very, a, a picture on that. So I guess, so it's interesting. So they've done, there's a whole bunch and these are specifically oral medications and there's Tylenol, or sorry, there's acetaminophen, um, NSAIDs, they often separate out non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs from COX-2 inhibitors, just the way they've been evaluated. And then also what's, what's the value in combination with the NSAID and acetaminophen. So, so the interesting thing that I'm going to just highlight, because I yeah. think uh, it's important for for all of us to understand that that it's not 100% pain reduction that you're looking for. No. That 50% is is important in the sense that we're not trying to over-medicate, but we're also all we're trying to do is help patients tolerate the pain better so they can move better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that That's, 50%, I think, is so important. If the goal is zero pain, we will be forever chasing that effect because not everybody gets good pain relief with any medication, even, you know, no matter what analgesic is utilized. But what we do find, so we were, because we're able to say, okay, do you get that goal and reduction in pain? We can sort of say, oh, we can calculate numbers needed to treat acetaminophen as an example. You know, we treat anywhere between three and four patients one of those patients will have that 50% reduction. If you look at a non-steroidal, you treat anywhere between two and three patients, one person is going to get that goal, mm-hmm. to achieve that goal. When you combine a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory with acetaminophen, that goes down anywhere from, you know, generally, we, we unfortunately we're talking in half patients, people, because that's just the way the numbers bear out. But really, one to two patients will get that will get that pain relief, and these are patients actually have severe pain, mm-hmm. um, post surgical pain, and it's across a variety of post surgical indications. So these people have had many different types of surgeries, so it does bear out that a single dose, when you add your medication together, does seem to do more for our end goal. Um, and that actually is interesting because even when you look at opioids or oral opioids, and it's actually not been all that well evaluated that's come out in, in, in terms of this, as single agents, they actually don't tend to do as well as NSAIDs. Um, and they, even when they're combined with an, either an acetaminophen opioid or acetaminophen NSAID, there's small added benefit, but not a large added benefit. So we talk about the number needed to treat, but what about the number needed to harm when you look at the NSAID acetaminophen combination? So interesting, the number needed to harm. So because these are these are trials that are evaluated, they are short term, but they are randomized controlled trials, which are compared against placebo. And in generally speaking, the numbers needed to the the, their safety results suggest that there's actually um, compared to not utilizing these medications. There's less reporting of adverse effects with the combination than the placebo. Now, that's not likely related to the medications necessarily. It's related to the patients aren't getting relief. It's hard to break it out in a nice, clean way, saying is the medication causing it or is it the inadequate pain relief? The other thing that's really interesting to me, though, is even in these trials, placebo, up to 20% of patients actually had a reduction in pain scores um, just taking placebo. So we're all very different people in how we respond to pain and then also how we respond to to treatment of that pain. So, Well, it highlights the individual specific nature of pain and that we shouldn't be painting every patient with the same brush. I mean, what we see in terms of, you know, habits and behaviors of some of our surgical colleagues who I have a total number of respect for, but often they've got these pre-done up you know, triplicate or duplicates where, where, you know, where you're writing the opioids, but they just sign them and they dispense, 
you know, uh, you know, 100 tablets or 90 tablets or and hopefully that some of that stuff is starting to change. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the other thing that I think is important is, you know, oftentimes we have a mindset that when we're talking about post-surgical pain, we're only talking about opioids generally. When in fact, I mean, opioids should be seen as a adjunct rather than the primary therapy. Absolutely. So if I could come back just briefly to the other evidence that the way it's evaluated sure. is actually, so it's, it's it's short-term again, it's over sort of 24 to 48 hours, but patients are given opioids as needed, um, their IV, and they control their own IV opioids, and then they give medication, so either an NSAID and, or an acetaminophen or the combined, and see what it does. Again, we don't have good outcomes to say it helps people with their function and stuff. It's not reported that way a whole lot. But when non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and acetaminophen were put together, morphine consumption is reduced um, mm. more than, than if either agent is given alone. Um, it's not clearly defined, well, what is important, like how much of a reduction actually is valuable. Um, because if it's a small reduction, it might not actually, the patient might not actually notice it, say, for example. But we do know that um, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and the combination seem to reduce post-operative nausea and vomiting if, if they weren't on board. And then also there's actually a further reduction in pain scores on those pain scales, again, over and above what is seen when those agents are used individually. So it's those two types of evidence that we're kind of piecing together. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- you're right, that, go- that goes to your next statement, though we're assuming that opioids are necessary in these patients, and that's, the, that's how they've been evaluated. But even guidelines are acknowledging that, you know, opioids are not necessary for all patients post-surgically, depending on the severity of pain that that individual patient is receiving because we know single doses of opioids actually don't bear out that well. And really we should be reserving them as add-on type therapies um, because acetaminophen and NSAIDs in patients that actually can take both, of course, um, that they are kind in some ways the gold standard. Um, And so really we should only be considering opioids at all in patients that have severe pain. Um, Sometimes perhaps moderate can be a crossover there, again, depending on what the patients can take. But um, but yeah, the actually evidence to sort of bear out, it's not been evaluated in a way of, can we just take out the opioid and, and compare? Because opioids historically have been felt to be sort of the cornerstone of, of post-surgical yeah. therapies. There are starting, and it's very preliminary, and I think probably in the next few years, we'll start to see trials actually come out and evaluate an NSAID acetaminophen combination compared to an opioid combination. Um, or perhaps, you know, the three versus two, say, for example, yeah. but it's, it's, it's coming. We're not there. Right well, now. you know, one of my fears, um, because I, I know I could be totally wrong and I understand the pill burden that patients have to experience, but I personally think it's important to separate out these medications or the, these therapies. And mm-hmm. when you start to see the combination therapies and patients developed, like, I'm just thinking about something like a dual active opioid tile number threes. If somebody develops some complications related to uh, overuse, you know, how they can do more damage in terms of their liver. Um, Right. And so, and I have seen, interestingly, I've seen some combinations now out there, uh, NSAID acetaminophen combinations 
which personally I'm thinking, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, okay, I, I understand, you know, I understand the benefit of the pill burden. But I also am concerned about, okay, because what I what I often see in my space is the complications related to the pharmacotherapies. So the, the, the simpler I can make it uh, in terms of uh, knowing what the patient may be reacting to, uh, the better. But when you see these combinations, you haven't got a clue. And patients get labeled with, you know, an allergy to Tylenol when in fact it's, or sorry, acetaminophen when in mm-hmm. fact it actually is the opiate analgesic that they actually have. It's not even an allergy. It's a side effect, but they won't use either. In addition to that, because of the evidence, you know, we're, we're going to be promoting, or guidelines certainly are promoting now routine around the clock acetaminophen and NSAIDs yeah. and only considering opioids if needed, only on an as needed basis. So there, it's kind of positioned that way. But some patients, acetaminophen might be in an, enough on its own. For some patients, NSAIDs might be enough on their own. So even separating out, you have that dose flexibility. It is a pill burden. Yeah. Um, you can pick, you know, agents that can be combined together and dosed at the same time. So say, for example, an ibuprofen and an acetaminophen um, would be sort of have the same dosing schedule. Even without that, say, for example, though, say an naproxen would be dosed twice a day. So, um, and then you'd have your acetaminophen could be dosed sort of same time with an additional dose in between. It is cumbersome, but I do think it also allows to adjust and see how that patient's uh, pain is actually being managed and, and what they actually need. Yeah, exactly. I had a really, I've got a great example of a good friend of mine just had a total knee replacement and was sent home on hydromorphone, which is totally appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got a call and said, look, I, I think this is making my pain worse. And I said, well, probably it could be. Obviously, there are some people that can get a wind-up effect, uh, that opiate-induced hyperalgesia. Mm -hmm. And he actually went to Tylenol and found it more effective than the hydromorphone. And that is also something that people need to be aware of, is that one of the complications is worsening pain from an opioid. (laughs) So in the right patient. Absolutely. And in in some cases, we even find, so going back, that like the numbers needed to treat, say, for example, for single-dose um, like I said, codeine, as an example, it is way higher than acetaminophen alone, even at high doses. Um, single dose oxycodone is actually less effective than an NSAID um, at five milligram strength. The 15 milligram strength, say, for example, brings it more in line with your acetaminophen slash in between acetaminophen and your and your NSAID. So for some people, an acetaminophen is actually going to give them this exact same relief as as that opioid. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. So and the other piece of that, though, I think that I would also say to healthcare providers, like, don't be afraid to use the opiate analgesic, but use it mm-hmm. in a way that is really based on safety and also what's realistic about what the opioid is actually there to do. And uh, I think when we talk about limiting dual active, limiting euphoric in those vulnerable brains, so people under the age of, you know, and I know there's not a lot of uh, science that says, okay, when you're 50, your brain is less <laughs> likely. But I, th- I use that as a, a rule of thumb. I, I mean, obviously, renal insufficiency is probably one of my most important things when I'm thinking about opiate analgesics. But in that young vulnerable brain, I'm going to stay away from those euphoric opiates um, and uh, limit them to probably three to five days. And if that's problematic for that uh, surgeon, and if it's you know giving it a longer um, uh, opiate uh, prescription, uh, giving partial fills. 
so that the patient can go back to the drugstore rather than have a lot of pill at, at home. And yeah. uh, so hopefully that message is getting out there that, uh, you know, that uh, we can do this, we can do this safely. It's it's no, I always compare it to the anti-clotting drugs, right? So we don't think twice about having the conversations with the patients around, you know, using their medication and prescribing them safely uh, in a way that minimizes harm and all the different factors that can come in there to change the effectiveness and the efficacy of that that anti-clotting drug. But we tend to have these reluctant feelings around the conversations with opioids, which just I find really interesting. But I think it's because we pull in that moral ethical reasoning rather than the safety piece, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting. I think there's always been this, or there has historically also been a fear. Because I, you're you're absolutely right. Opioids do play a role in for some patients, and especially depending on the type of surgery, um, the, and the severity of you know the, the not only the severity expected severity of pain, but also duration of recovery. You know, it is reasonable to expect that some patients will still require the triple medications, we'll say, or at least add on you know additional combinations of medications with opioids being one of them where possible because it's just not going to be for all patients. But historically, we've kind of prescribed too many. That's And, and so, and we know we prescribe too many. We actually have evidence for observational trial, large observational trial evidence that show a vast majority of patients don't actually utilize um, what they're prescribed um, on discharge, anywhere from 50 to 90% of um, prescriptions have some amount of opioids left over. And with that, even there was, uh, you know, sizable amounts of of opioids, not not one or two pills left over at the end of the day, but sometimes sizable amount of Mm. of the prescription left over. And and so it's then available for, you know, other, if it's left in the home and it's available for other people to to utilize or utilize at another time when it might not be appropriate to use. Um, there's very real risk there. And we've actually, there's our observational trials as well that have evaluated, okay, two pieces. If we reduce reduce the number of opioids compared to what we normally prescribe, are patients responding any differently? And generally, patients don't, cons- in fact, consume less medication, don't re- necessarily require additional refills, and report just the same response on pain scales. And then there's also been actually out of this out of the United States, there's a very large um, in Michigan, they've done these very large um, database evaluations of what patients actually use for a large number of surgical indications. Now, not, not every surgical indication has been evaluated, but they establish a threshold of at least 70, you know, the enough medication, for, opioid medication for at least 75% of the population. And so these guides out there to sort of evaluate. So like I said, even though there's not a lot of evidence dealing with post-discharge prescribing of opioids, there are some consensus statements. There's a recent Canadian consensus statement that came out in 2020, and there is one out of Washington State as well, which which categorize the surgeries based on recovery time. So as an example, a medium-term recovery would be somebody, you know, any type of surgery you'd expect a return to sort of most most activities within four weeks, as an example. Yeah. And they're able to sort of take that, you know, database evaluation and say, look, these patients, if we expect a moderate mm-hmm. recovery, um, you know, really no more than seven days of, of opioid is needed mm-hmm. and still prescribed on that as needed basis. So patients can determine if they do need it or not. So these guides do exist. They're, I mean, they are guides. There's no standard threshold, no optimal prescribing pills for any opioid pills for any person 
or any given procedure, but they are good, you know, prescribing thresholds to, to utilize. Um, and even within that seven days, they're not sort of, it's not a promotion of, you know, maximum doses at the maximum yeah. um, availability, but say, for example, seven days will correlate to 30 tablets, say, for example. Um, yeah. And so anything over, and even in, in severe, what we call, yeah, the, 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 the recovery is expected to be longer, rarely would 14 days be required. Yeah. And, you know, in those scenarios, it's still being, it is being advocated that you do part fills exactly for that exact reason, because some of these patients aren't going to need even up to that 14 days. And so then it allows the reevaluation. And if a patient isn't responding appropriately or, or requiring more, and they're not sort of fitting into the nice, neat mold of these sort of thresholds, mm -hmm. it is a flag that they really should be reevaluated um, to make sure there's nothing going on. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure there's no new pathology or progression of any kind of pathology. So I think we're going to stop here, pick it up in a couple of weeks, continue to talk about opiate analgesics with Natasha. And uh, so we'll end it here and uh, pick it up later on. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.